Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and this is Money Talks. Later in the program, why an ever-increasing number of young men in America are dropping out of the job market to play video games. The hard question is, is that the decision that they're making, or are they instead being, you know, forced out of the workforce for whatever reason, and then choosing to play video games to occupy their time? And we meet a researcher who's been investigating if papers written by female economists are somehow clearer and more precise than the ones written by men. If it were something about women just writing more clearly, then we should not see any kind of a, a readability gap. We don't see that. We see, in fact, a widening gap. But to start, the surprise news of a snap election in Britain on June the 8th. I'm joined by my colleague Philip Coggan to talk about what this might mean for the markets. But uh, first of all, Philip, let's get the procedure sorted out. We have fixed-term parliaments now in Britain. The Prime Minister has said she would like an election on June the 8th. Do the markets take it for granted she will get one? Yes, they do, because the opposition parties uh, have indicated they will vote to support an election. Uh, Under the new system, you need a two-thirds majority in Parliament to get an election. There'll be a vote on April the 19th and is expected to pass uh, through that stage and an election will be called on June the 8th. In practice, it means that we don't have a huge change from the system that prevailed before 2011 when the Prime Minister could choose to call an election when they liked because which opposition would say, oh no, we'd rather not get the chance to oppose you and uh, form a government. Uh, They're almost always likely to be agree to the election for fear of being called chicken. The usual cliche, I suppose, is that markets hate uncertainty. And by definition, an election introduces an element of uncertainty into British politics. So is it fair to say that the markets will be displeased by this? I don't think it's completely fair to say. If you look at what's happened, Sterling fell by a cent or so before the announcement because they weren't sure what Theresa May was going to say. As soon as she announced it was going to be an election, then sterling bounced again and is up against the dollar and the euro on the day. The equity market is down. Now, it's quite hard to disentangle this because European equity markets are down anyway. There's been some weakness in the iron ore price, which has hit mining shares and that seems to force down markets generally. But the FTSE 100 is down more than either the German DAX market or the French CAC, which of course has its own election to worry about uh, next Sunday on the 23rd. So that may be connected to sterling's rise, though. So in Britain, a large proportion of earnings of the big companies comes from overseas. When sterling falls, that increases the value of those overseas earnings in terms of the pound. When sterling rises, that decreases the value of those earnings. So by and large, since the Brexit referendum, we've seen days when the pound has fallen lead to a gain in the FTSE 100 and days when the pound has risen lead to a fall. A peculiar feature of this election is, is, I suppose, that there's one dominant issue, which is, as you mentioned, Brexit, but that you have both the 
ruling party and the main opposition Labour Party saying that the will of the people as expressed in the referendum must be respected. So it's not going to change very much, is it? No, the hope in the markets, and I think that's why sterling is up, is that Theresa May will get a bigger majority. Some opinion polls have a 20 percentage points ahead of Labour. This will allow her not really to see off the threat from the Labour Party or other opposition parties like the Liberal Democrats, but from her own uh, backbenchers, some of whom are pushing for a very hard Brexit indeed. So with a majority at the moment only in uh, the low double digits, she can be defeated if she compromises with the EU on things like freedom of movement or paying money into the EU budget. I think the hope in the markets was that if Theresa May had a majority of 100 or so, then she'd be able to see off the threat of those hardliners. Thank you very much, Phil Coggan, and look forward to discussing the results with you as well. Thank you. Next, a sweet story. Later this year, the EU is to abolish its production quotas on sugar beet production. This is likely to have a big effect on the market, not just in Europe, but worldwide, affecting also producers of cane sugar in Africa, the Caribbean and the Pacific. To look at likely winners and losers, I'm joined by the economist Rachana Shanbog. Rachana, on the face of it, it seems odd that Europe's still producing a lot of sugar at all. What's the history of that? The history dates back to the Napoleonic Wars, Simon, when England blockaded France, which meant that she could no longer import um, cane sugar imports from the Caribbean. And that led to a technique being developed using sugar beet, which turns out produces white sugar that is indistinguishable from sugar produced from sugar cane. And that sugar beet production has been protected by the EU's quotas on production and imports. Why are they now being lifted? The EU for some years now has been trying to make its agricultural policy more market-oriented, to bring down prices of the foodstuffs and um, to make farmers more competitive. For example, back in 2015, quotas on the milk production were lifted. So from October this year, production quotas on sugar beet farming, as well as minimum prices for sugar beet, are going to be abolished. So are we going to see a a huge glut of sugar beet production and and prices fall uh, quite sharply? Prices have already fallen quite sharply as the market has um, sort of adjusted to what's going to happen in October. And thanks to some restructuring funding from the EU, a lot of inefficient producers that were propped up by state support have now closed down. Market observers expect sugar beet production to increase by as much as 17% this year. And presumably the sugar cane producing countries must be worried by this. Although the EU is liberalising the way in which its sugar beet is produced, imports on sugar cane will still remain. And as prices in Europe fall, sugar cane producers will no longer make as much revenue as they used to from exporting sugar to Europe. What's worse from their point of view is that Europe will also become a net exporter of sugar to the rest of the world. Now that they're not supporting their sugar beet farmers, they'll be free to export as as much as they like to countries in northern Africa and the Middle East. And and do these sugarcane producers overseas, do they have any allies, as it were, within the EU? Yes, they do have allies, Simon. There are sugarcane refiners in about nine member states of the EU, including Tate & Lyle in the UK, for example. And they're really keen to receive freer access to cane imports, because without that, their margins are being squeezed as the prices of white sugar fall, but the prices of raw imports stay the same. And that's one reason why Tate and Lyle in Britain 
decided to support the Leave campaign during the Brexit referendum. Rachana Schamburg, thank you very much for joining us. Next, as video games get better and job prospects worse, more young men are dropping out of the job market to spend their time in an alternate reality. Is this the beginning of something big? Philip Coggan has been speaking to The Economist's free exchange columnist, Ryan Avent, and he began by asking him if young men in America really are dropping out of work in favour of playing games. It looks like that to some extent if you dig into the data, and there have been a number of economists who have really decided to tackle this issue. And what they've found is that since 2000, there has been a, a pretty significant decline in participation in the workforce among people in their and especially young men without college educations in their in their 20s. And it's been a decline of about 10 percentage points, which is, is pretty substantial, and that's not just due to the crisis. And so when they then go and look at surveys of how people spend their time, what they see is that most of the reduction in, in work, you know, is, is matched by a rise in leisure, which is or, or time spent not working. So it's not that they're not working, but they're going into, to get more education. And then about 75% of the increase in leisure time uh, is spent playing video games. And so, you know, if you just take the data at face value, it kind of looks like these young men are saying, we don't want to work, we want to go play games. And I think the hard question is, you know, is that the decision that they're making or are they instead being, you know, forced out of the workforce for whatever reason and then choosing to play video games to occupy their time? And how do we tell the difference? I mean, surely 20 years ago, a lot of young men sat at home and watched TV as the alternative to going to work or went to the pub. How, how do you tell what's, which is driving which? Well, it's, it's really hard. It's not very easy. And I think one thing I've tried to do is actually to go and, and talk to some gamers. And you can find examples of people who... Who, who say that they've made this choice consciously, that, um, you know, they will go and get a job and work for a little while when they, you know, are sort of desperate for funds, but that actually they're pretty happy spending as much time as they can gaming. I think in my, my sense is that the more common experience is that people have had struggles finding good jobs and that, you know, while they're out looking for better jobs or, or while they're trying to find a new job after being laid off, you know, you can only spend so many hours a day filing job applications and knocking on doors and so forth. And so they're using that extra time to game, uh, which is, you know, games are better than ever. It's a very satisfying way in some sense to spend your time. I think one thing that's interesting to look at is what the prospects have been like for young workers over the same time period. That could give us some sense of whether people are being pushed or whether they're jumping. And since 2000, things really have looked quite quite difficult for, for young workers just entering the labor force, and especially for people without a college degree. So the, the, the real wage in, in rich countries, or in some rich countries, that's earned by people without a college degree is lower now than it was in 2000. And the number of people with college degrees who are working in jobs that don't require a degree has risen from 30% to 45%. So that, that suggests that at least some of this is due to the fact that things just aren't that great out in the working world. And does this lead to what economists call hysteresis? If you have spent the last couple of years playing Halo on your couch, then you're not equipped to work anymore. And once you you know go into the world of video gaming, you never come out again. 
Well, that is one of the big concerns. The, the 20s tend to be really important years for people in terms of their working lives. They're years when you make a lot of connections, where you develop important skills, where you figure out what you're good at and what you'd like to do and job hop more than at other times in your life. Uh, and so to miss out on, on those experiences because you're playing games uh, is pretty hard. It's hard to get back and develop those skills later. And I think we could expect that people who, who find themselves in this situation, either because they've chosen it or been forced into it, are going to suffer uh, you know, lifelong consequences as a result. Um, and it's not just the economic consequences. You could see this as a form of social hysteresis as well. The researchers that have looked at this find that you know, the people who are spending time gaming tend to live at home for longer. They're less likely to buy a home. Uh, they're less likely to be married um, at a given age. And so it's possible that, you know, in all these forms of adult life, this thing delays and possibly postpones indefinitely the sort of life steps that we would expect people to take. And does it lead to unhealthiness, obesity? Does it make them more violent? I think the evidence on, on these sorts of things is a little mixed, uh, you know, and as you noted earlier, you know, gaming can often substitute for other even less healthy uh, behaviors, sort of going, such as going to the pub or getting into drugs uh, or things like that. And so I, I think it's not clear whether gaming makes those things worse. I think what is clear is that it, people who find themselves in these circumstances out of work, spending a lot of time gaming, are much worse off than people who are, uh, you know, take on the normal career trajectory, uh, progressing as we would, you know, sort of expect them to at that age. Uh, and so there is a sense of urgency, you know, if these people are not choosing this life, if they are being forced into it by, you know, weakness in the economy, you know, that, that's really something that we should focus on in a serious way to try to fix. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks to The Economist's free exchange columnist, Ryan Avent, and of course to Philip Coggan. If you have any thoughts on what you hear on Money Talks, do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, it's widely acknowledged that there's a gender problem in economics. After all, the vast majority of professors and associate professors at all levels are men. This was one of the issues discussed at the recent Royal Economic Society's annual conference in Bristol. Erin Hengel is a lecturer in economics at the University of Liverpool. She's carried out a fascinating investigation into the gender clarity of written research. And she's been speaking with The Economist's Samaya Keynes. Erin, you look at a new kind of discrimination against women, which is that papers written by women appear to be more clear than papers written by men. So I look at the readability of abstracts in articles that are published in top econ journals. And I find that female author papers are, on average, 1% to 6% more clearly written than male author papers. And that's based on standard measures of readability? Precisely. So there's actually a vast literature on this in linguistics and education that investigates what are the determinants of how readable a piece of text is. Um, and so they have actually developed many different indicators that exploit this type of relationship. And I focus on a number of them that are the, the most common and the most reliable. How do we know that it isn't just that women write papers in fields where the papers tend to be more readable? Well, first of all, I control for the actual field. So I control first for the primary JEL classification. What's that? So you, the, the Journal of Economic Literature has a classification? Yeah, so the exactly. They established several decades ago this classification system, which basically grouped ideas or paper ideas into, first of all, 20 primary JEL classifications. I control for those. 
So, and they would include things like um, macroeconomics, microeconomics, industrial organization. And then I also do um, a separate analysis where I include also the seven, over 700 tertiary JEL codes. So those break those down even more, and they're very specific. Okay, so even within very, very specific fields of economics, you still see this gender gap in the readability of papers? Yes. Okay, so you find this difference in published papers. How do you know that, you know, that women are just, you know, maybe they're just clearer writers than men, maybe they're born with it? In order to look more deeply about what was going on, then basically what I did was I took papers that were in draft versions. So draft versions of, of a paper. These are the papers that existed that were existed before the actual paper was published or before even it was sent to peer review. And then I compared it to the published version of that exact same paper. And then I look at the differences. And I find, in fact, that the gender readability gap that you know one sees just in the published version actually ends up increasing by two to three hundred percent on average during precisely the time that they are undergoing peer review. And under relatively weak assumptions, um, we can largely see that as the peer review process causing this increase in readability gap. Now, if it were something about women just writing more clearly, then we should not see any kind of a, a readability gap. We would just see in the, in the draft versions, we'd see that their papers are clearer. In the final versions, we would see the same difference. We don't see that. We see, in fact, a widening gap. You also have an interesting finding in terms of lifetime improvement. So women seem to get better or more readable as their careers go on, whereas men don't. Yes, exactly. So what I also do is I, I look at the data from the author's point of view. So I follow one author through her or his entire career. And I show, I find, in fact, that for men, every additional publication is no more or less readable than his last publication. So basically, the guy's first publication is going to be a certain readability level. His next publication is going to be identical, etc. That indicates that there's no real positive reinforcement that he's getting in the peer review process from readability. For women, it's a totally different story. In fact, they every single paper that a woman writes is more readable than her last paper. So then, for example, for me, the next paper that I write will be more readable. That's a big indication that during peer review, given that we've already established that this is there is something going on in peer review that's causing this readability gap to be to emerge, during peer review, then they are receiving a form of positive reinforcement that men are not receiving. So they're getting two separate signals here. This is quite a specific finding. Do we know whether you know women are subject to higher quality standards in other fields as well? What this is suggesting is that we have a bit of a quantity versus quality trade-off. So in academia, in, in publishing in academia, what that implies is that women are in the peer review process. They have to provide more evidence before the peer review team is willing to sign off and accept the paper. Now, that takes time, but it obviously will increase the quality of their output. Like they now, you know, their papers will be clearer and, um, for example, can be read by a wider um, degree of people. But at the same time, that's also going to take time around, away from other activities such as research. So it will reduce presumably also their research quantity elsewhere. So that is a quantity versus quality trade-off that describes this particular relationship, and we may actually see this in a lot of other areas beyond academia. One of the most obvious cases was female physicians. Um, they take on fewer patients, but recent research came out that their patients are less likely to die or be readmitted to hospital. Um, so you can see there is a quantity versus quality trade-off. There has been other research that has look at, looked at, for example, Real estate agents, female real estate agents will list fewer homes, but the homes that they do list sell for higher prices. Also, again, a quantity versus quality trade-off. 
Wonderful. Okay, so the peer review process is a problem, but this is one example of much, much wider set of cases of discrimination against women where they're held to higher standards, and that means that they have to spend more time in achieving the quality that is expected of them. Yes. Erin, thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks to the economist Samaya Keynes. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.